Coming up today, how COVID tracking apps are pivoting for commercial profit, and we talk about the future of genome sequencing. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the best stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temerton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when major concerns were raised about data gathered by period tracking apps in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. The ruling, which makes abortion legal in 22 US states, will criminalise the act of seeking abortion services. As such, any data submitted or collected by any kind of app could potentially be used against women seeking an abortion. This was also the week when, after just a year of operating in Belgium, the delivery app Gorillas made the decision to exit, closing all its warehouses in Brussels and Antwerp and letting go of most of the country's 200 employees. The Berlin-based business has struggled to raise new funds as investors back away from loss-making tech companies. And it was also the week where polio virus was detected in sewage water in London, suggesting the first local spread of polio in the UK for almost 40 years. The last case of polio in the UK was in 1984, but routine sewage analysis detected the virus in several samples between February and May this year. And that suggests that there's a localised outbreak that started with someone entering the UK around New Year who might have passed on the virus to a small number of other people, potentially on vaccinated children. So the hunt is on to find out exactly where these cases are, but the sewage samples cover about 4 million people in London. So identifying the source of the virus will be extremely tricky. And finally, this was the week when the US Food and Drug Administration blocked the sale of dual e-cigarettes, citing a lack of evidence about any potential health risks. It is a significant blow for the company and for the growing vaping industry in the US. Before we continue with the show, just a further word on Roe versus Wade. Obviously, this is a huge, huge story and one that will continue to cover across Wired. But due to people being out quite a bit this week, we're actually recording the podcast on June 27th, which is Monday. So just a couple of days after the ruling. And we didn't really feel in a position to weigh on in such a harrowing and complicated story. You can read all of our coverage on the fall of Roe versus Wade and the decision's impact on reproductive rights in the United States and elsewhere on wired.com. All right, what did we learn this week? Morgan, I'll come to you first. So this week I learned that while Japan has this image of being kind of incredibly tech savvy, has a lot of famous tech businesses, it's companies that operate there are actually really hooked on dated technology so almost all businesses there use fax machines and when microsoft shut down internet explorer on june 16th it's basically caused chaos because 49 percent of professionals according to one survey rely on the browser for work so companies that sort of help help other companies sort out their tech problems have been inundated with requests for help because government agencies and financial institutions are among the companies that forgot to find an alternative before Microsoft turned off Internet Explorer. I like this idea of the entire nation of Japan or a good percentage of professionals within it scrambling around to replace Internet Explorer about a decade after most of the rest of the world abandoned it. I mean, the the answer is fairly obvious. Head to a search engine of your choice and type in browsers, 
Maybe they're waiting. Maybe they have to fax each other advice on what to do next. (laughs) Maybe. This is a fascinating story. Um, Did you did you read about it somewhere else, Morgan? Like what what's the What's the, the, the source of the 49%? Uh, yeah, I read about it. The story was on the Financial Times about how, um, yeah, basically the chaos that it's caused and how all these Japanese companies kind of forgot to do anything ahead of Internet Explorer being turned off. And, and yeah, it's quite interesting. It is. It's fascinating. For the, for the rest of the world, the, the final, final death of Internet Explorer was kind of, it felt like a bit of a moment, but it didn't really have any practical ramifications. But yeah, so there we go. In, in Japan, it caused minor chaos, which is both amusing and slightly unfortunate. All right, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn well, this week? I have another story themed around Japanese companies, but kind of accidentally this time. So I learned that the PlayStation 2 console was only discontinued in 2013, which is 13 years after it was first released in 2000, just, just under 13 years, actually. So this means it has one of the longest production runs of any console. It's being produced almost right up until the moment the PlayStation 4 was released, but it's not the longest running production console ever. That crown goes to the Sega Master System, which was released in 1985 and is still being produced in Brazil 37 years later. That is an excellent fact. Why, though? Why specifically Brazil and why such a long run? Uh, Apparently, so this was all to do with uh, Sega taking on Nintendo and it didn't really kind of catch on worldwide. But apparently Brazil just it became massively popular there. And actually old consoles are quite popular in Brazil and it's been produced in lots and lots of different forms. So the, the current form of the Sega Master System is essentially a very small miniature um, console with a hard drive that has about 100 games preloaded. So it's not exactly the same as the first version of the system, but it's the same games, it's the same kind of console. But um, yeah, it just it really took off in Brazil where it didn't in the rest of the world. Yeah, Brazil was, as you were saying, Matt, it was somewhere where old consoles are really, really popular. And I think a lot of the PS2 sales that were happening in 2013 were in South America because the games were a lot cheaper. You know, you were looking at like 50 quid for a PS4 game brand new, whereas the PS2 games could be gotten for a lot cheaper and it was also one of the consoles one of the last consoles where you could kind of you know crack it and illegally get games for free basically which isn't really possible with the newer ones with all the drm and internet connectivity that's required yeah and there are various markets around the world right where old or oddball versions of consoles are still ridiculously ridiculously popular particularly in in regions where games companies haven't tended to venture because piracy is so high so there have been various like alternative versions of nintendo consoles that have been released in mainland china um so it's it's not one games industry for us all good stuff all right our first story this week is about the covid data pivot matt and morgan you both reported a story this week on how covid tracking apps are pivoting for commercial profit and this was a story that you both saw bubbling up independently of one another. So what did you spot and what about it really grabbed you? Yeah, so during the pandemic, I was actually working for a Dutch magazine called The Correspondent. And I was working on this project where we were documenting all the apps that were introduced all over the world during the pandemic. So the scale was massive. There was contract tracing apps, symptom tracker apps, surveillance apps to make sure you weren't breaking out of quarantine. And even at the start of the pandemic, it was obvious that some of these apps were going to want to pivot at some point. They were sat on all this data, even if that was just data about how users behave. That's right. In the UK, one of the biggest of these apps was Zoe, which is a huge initiative that started in late March 2020. And basically, it asked people to report their symptoms 
in the app. It'd say, you know, do you have a new uh, loss of smell or do you have new sore throat or, you know, runny nose or any of these symptoms that were associated with COVID. And the idea was this would help track new uh, outbreaks and track new infections at a time when there wasn't really very good access to testing. And Zoe was really, really influential and important in the UK. It informed the government response. It got the list of symptoms changed. So it was only because of data from the Zoe symptom tracker that loss or change of smell and taste became, uh, you know, a, a kind of official COVID symptom. And so this ran for, you know, it's been running for almost two years or more than two years. But in early May, 2020, users got an email saying that things had changed in the Zoe uh, symptom tracker app. And this email basically said that the Zoe COVID symptom tracking app was going to become the Zoe health study. And for the first time, it would ask people to input data way beyond their COVID symptoms. So they'd talk about, uh, you know, uh, gut health or, you know, mouth ulcers and things like that. So suddenly, it was a, a study that was much more about general population health, rather than just about COVID symptoms. May 2022, right? Not May 2020. It's a recent change. Yes, that's right. May 20. Yeah, this May. Yep. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about how Zoe has changed, Matt. As you say, this app was a huge deal during the worst of the pandemic in the UK. And, and this is a fairly big pivot for it to make. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's hard to really understate how big this app was actually through the last two years, but particularly, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're talking before we had the official contact tracing app from the NHS. We're talking this app was set up only a few days after the first lockdown went into place. And so to be clear, I mentioned this a little bit, but this isn't a contact tracing app like the NHS app, which says um, how close is Matt to someone else? And did he meet someone else that might have had this virus? This is all about self-reporting your symptoms every day. You log in, you say, I'm feeling great or I'm, you know, I'm not feeling good as a way to to see where outbreaks were taking place. And the idea was that Zoe would communicate this information to the government. They'd use it to, um, A, A, kind of just publicise that data, but also track regionalised responses. And actually, the story of the COVID symptom tracker coming into being was kind of pretty exceptional. So this, you know, the team put it together, this team at Zoe and also at King's College London put together this app only about after five days of frantic development. So Zoe is this nutrition company that had been developing this nutrition tracking app. But because one of the co-founders, a guy called Tim Spector, was a uh, you know, public health professor at King's College London, he said, hey, look, we can use this to actually track symptoms. So we can kind of pivot this app. So it's all, this story all started with a, with a pivot and then ended with another pivot. But they said, let's pivot this app so we can track symptoms instead and just 10 days after it launched it had 2 million downloads and over the pandemic around 4.7 million people downloaded the app to report their test results and also whether they had symptoms and, and this is a you know, huge deal you know by far the most widely used app of its kind in the UK so at its peak 2.4 million people were tracking their symptoms using this covid symptom tracker and it's one of the three surveillance studies the UK government used to track and respond to new outbreaks um, and i spoke about that data uh, around loss of smell, meaning that the government changed their official symptoms list. And because of all of this, because it's, you know, uh, public benefit and because it's evolving with public health, between August 2020 and March 2022, this app and the Zoe team was funded with £5.1 million from the Department of Health and Social Care. So it had quite significant government backing as well. It's important to note that the pandemic isn't over, but it's definitely faded from view and as a result i imagine the way in which people were using and interacting with this app has faded as well so it would make sense i suppose 
for the people behind it to look at what it might now do differently. But rather than going after COVID in a different way, it's doing something completely, completely different. So how is it changing? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, users of the Zoe app would have found in early May, they got this email that said that the COVID symptom tracker was becoming the Zoe health study. And this basically asked people to do a similar thing, but for, for a different purpose. So it asked people to take 10 seconds each day to log their mental and physical health beyond COVID. So people who agree to take part in this wider study, uh, so people, even if you have the app, you're not automatically included in this new study. You have to say, okay, I'm going to re-consent to this new way of using my data. They're asked to establish their baseline health. So they report everything from hair loss to mouth ulcers and, and gut health and you know, all these kind of different things, as well as providing daily health updates. And so the company says that this Zoe, the company behind this, says that the data will be used to fight the most important health issues of our time. So it's got to focus on cardiovascular disease, nutrition, and these kind of big population level health issues. But it also notes that this data might be used to develop commercial health, nutrition, and lifestyle products. Because as I said, you know, Zoe's core business is selling personalized nutrition tests and subscriptions to nutrition plans. So it's basically a kind of nutrition health platform. So this is really quite a big shift into this overall, um, you know, general health. I should know that they're still doing this symptom tracking, this COVID tracking. So that's going to happen alongside it as well. But as well as this general health study, people are also being part, asked to take part in specific studies. So at the moment, you can log into the app and say, oh, I want to take part on a study that's involved in identifying early signs of dementia or on uh, the role of immune health in heart diseases or one on the gut microbiome. And the thing all these studies have in common is they're all about reporting your symptoms and reporting how changes in your lifestyle might relate to changes in your general health. You've kind of hinted at it there, but why might this be controversial or raise eyebrows amongst the millions of people who downloaded this app to track COVID symptoms and now find an email, you know, as you, as you said, asking for them to consent to a different function for the app, but all the same... It's not what the app was designed to do in the first place. So why is that problematic, do you think? Yeah, there are kind of a, a couple of things that, you know, I spoke to some ethicists and some privacy experts, and there are a couple of things that we kind of really raised. And one is that the Zovid, Zoe COVID symptom study, you know, it really was a way to track COVID outbreaks. And that was a pretty unique situation. And people that are signing up to it, you know, were trying to con contribute to this kind of, you know, this big public health emergency that we had. And so there are questions around scope creep here right this idea that should an app that sprang up for a public health project now at least partly be funneling data towards a private company so to what extent should the um company signpost this change does it should it get people to go into a different app is it okay to just change the name the, so the name of the study has been changed within the app but actually in the app store that hasn't been updated yet um spectre told me that it just takes a long time for that to be updated so at the moment it's still covid symptom tracker on your phone but actually it's this, it's this wider app and it's worth noting here that people that want to take part in this wider health study do have to reconsent it's not like they're kind of pulling this data and saying oh we've got this and now we're going to use it for that but it's not so much a question of data as this question of 4.7 million people on this platform. This is huge, you know, resource that, you know, can be used and people might have, you know, questions about, you know, what this goes to next. There's also this kind of bigger question that this was an app that was government backed, you know, it was 
kind of promoted by the government, it was funded by the government and certainly endorsed by the government. You know, does that confer something about this app status? And, and do people think these apps are perhaps more official than they are? Like, do people know that this is an app being run by a private company that now has these different motivations and have they been sufficiently signposted? So, so Morgan, you were talking right at the beginning how you put together this list of COVID tracking apps and basically wanted to follow how they developed, you know, what happened to them and, and how they worked and, and then how they changed after the pandemic. And when I was looking through that list and I was following up a, a lot of these regional symptom tracking or contact tracing apps, a lot of these government-backed apps simply shut down. They said, you know, it was there during the pandemic to track outbreaks. We no longer think the pandemic's at its peak, so we don't think this is worth funding. We're going to shut it down. Thank you. We're not going to do anything with that data. And I think some people might say, well, that was the right thing to do. It, it came for a purpose. That purpose is now changed or is no longer relevant. It's worth noting that, you know, the the health department funding has been withdrawn, so Zoe doesn't necessarily have the kind of incentive to do that on behalf of the government any anymore. But some people might say that, you know, once the app has finished doing the thing that it existed for, well it should stop. And if it wants to do this different health study, maybe it should start again with a new user base. I mean four odd million people is again they have to reconsent, but having an app on the phones of four point seven, was it million people is a pretty good starting point and even if just a small percentage of those people reconsent then for citizen science this is still something that's operating i would imagine on a fairly unprecedented scale and the, the zoe health study could recruit hundreds of thousands of people to track their health and habits in a way that we've never really been able to do before at least not so cheaply and easily so that there is potentially quite an exciting or interesting benefit for how we do citizen science, right? Yeah, and that's the flip side of it. it. You know, another way to look at this is the pandemic gave us a great opportunity where everyone got on board with tracking their health. And actually, we've never really had this kind of opportunity to track health at this popu- population level before. So, you know, now the, the Zoe Health Study has 800,000 participants. And even those smaller studies that I spoke about have hundreds of thousands of participants. And recruiting people for clinical studies is really difficult. You know, would you download an app to track your gut health if you didn't already have that app on your phone? Would you kind of go out of your way to do that? It's, it's you know, it's just this, you know, quite big barrier to entry. So on a really basic level, these are huge numbers and getting updated health information through so many people could help us understand things about nutrition and diseases that we don't know about right now. And so Tim Spector, the Zoe co-founder and and this uh, King's College London professor, he wants to use this huge database to answer all these questions that he has. So he wants to know, well, what happens when 100,000 people skip breakfast for two weeks? And theoretically, you could do that through the Zoe, the Zoe health study. You could, you could say, okay, 10% or 50% of our people, we're going to ask you to change your diet and then tell us how that changed your physical health, how that changed your mental health, and then we'll publish a study off the back of that. And that's a new kind of nimble and fast citizen science. I think a lot of people find very exciting. But of course, the other side of that is that this data can still be used to inform commercial products. As I said, Zoe sells nutrition tests and nutrition plans. And, you know, it's this kind of part scientific and part it's about you know, publishing scientific studies, but it's also about informing these kind of, um, uh, you know, commercial products as well. So there's this really almost dual aspect thing that's going on. It's saying, well, if you want these great benefits from this huge citizen science, citizen science project that can do all these kind of interesting academic studies, maybe you just have to accept that actually there is going to be some commercial development off the back of that as well. Absolutely. And speaking of commercial development, 
uh, Morgan. Zoe wasn't the only COVID tracking app which was changing in interesting ways as the worst of the pandemic faded from view. So you were looking at Luca, which is a really huge deal in Germany, but it's doing something quite different and it doesn't have anything to do with health. Yeah, exactly. So when I was talking to Matt about Zoe a few weeks ago, it struck me how similar the situation was to Luca, which I have been following closely. So Luca was one of two major contact tracing apps in Germany. It received millions of euros in government contracts and in total 40 million Germans signed up. And they were basically using the app to check into restaurants and be informed if they had been exposed to a COVID outbreak. So it was a contact tracing app. It wasn't tracking people's symptoms. But when the government contract started drying up earlier this year, that's when the the company started trying to find a new business model to keep the Luca app alive beyond that pandemic. So the idea that the company landed on was a payments app. And in June, it launched a payment function in the existing app. So people could basically go to a restaurant, scan a QR code, see their bill for what they'd just eaten and pay in the app instead of using a card terminal, basically. So they could either put their card details into the app or they could use Apple Pay uh, kind of through the app. And this is quite a bold business decision because Germans notoriously love using cash. So around 46% of Germans still prefer to use cash over card or mobile payments. That's according to a 2021 study by YouGov, the polling company. And just as a point of comparison, in the UK, that number is just over 20% who prefer to use cash over card. It's an absolutely wild stat about the use of cash in Germany. I had to use like coins. I think I've used notes a couple of times through the pandemic, but I paid for something with spare change for the first time the other day in what felt like probably more than two or three years. It was just quite odd. So the idea that nearly a majority of Germans still prefer to use cash over cards in this day and age is quite surprising. But I guess there is a need and the developers of of this content tracing app, Luca, have been quite smart to spot it. Um, And they feel that they're best place to meet it even given the various troubles that this app had in terms of user privacy and how it handled data during the pandemic yeah so there's definitely a gap in the market so no company has yet convinced germany to give up on cash and if luca could do that that would obviously be very lucrative But Luca has received a lot of criticism throughout its lifetime. There's been several instances that experts describe as examples of the app's security being compromised. So the first one was in April last year. Researchers uncovered a security gap with Luca's key fobs. Now, these are kind of like small tags that people could use to check into restaurants if they didn't own a smartphone, because that was a big concern at the start of the pandemic. And the researchers found that they they could use the QR code printed on the key fob to basically access a person's entire check-in history. Um, And then the second kind of controversy that was caused by the app was a man died outside a restaurant in the West German city of Mainz in November, November last year. And the local health department basically used the Luca app to access the contact details of 21 potential witnesses who were inside the restaurant at the time. And it handed these details over to the police. So that caused a big uproar in Germany. It was seen as a misuse of the app and kind of a violation of people's privacies. Now, Luca insists that neither of these incidents were a breach in the app security. It maintains that it's never had a data breach. It's very safe. It's very privacy conscious. They say that the key fob issue was a problem with the key fobs, not the app. The issue in Mainz was basically caused, they say, by the health authorities using the app to 
basically trick it into simulating a COVID infection. And so they kind of exploited the system. But that has made some people like Bianca Castle, an ID expert I spoke to, really wary about the app kind of remaining in public life. She she basically says if if Luca wasn't very good at keeping contact tracing data safe, I mean, how can Germany trust it with financial data? These are two quite different examples of what we're sort of referring to as the great COVID data pivot. You've got Zoe, which is remaining in the health sphere, and you've got Luca, which is trying to turn itself into a German version of Google Pay or a bridge between Germans who are a little bit um, uneasy about using mobile payments over cash. But where does all of this leave us? In, in the piece, um, you quote Phil Booth from the activist group Med Confidential, who says it was inevitable that businesses and projects that provided services through the pandemic would try and use that prominence for post-pandemic success, which is a fairly good point, right? And we've hinted at it a couple of times as we've talked about this story. There are millions of people, or in the case of Luca, 40 million people with this app on their phone. And there's a risk here that we blur the line between public health and private profit. So is what Zoe and Luca are doing a good thing? Or am I right to feel slightly uncomfortable with this sudden shift? Matt, what do you think? I think it's really difficult. And I, and I share your slight uncomfortableness here, because I think there's one aspect which is about the extent of the pivot. So I think that with Zoe, it, it's a pivot, but it maybe feels like a natural place to go for like broader population health studies. And so maybe if those people are, you know, if, if that's adequately signposted and people know what's changing and how their data is being used, then maybe that's okay. With, with Luca, that feels like maybe a much, a much bigger jump to do. And so that makes me feel maybe a little bit more uncomfortable. But then there's not really a clear line, is there? So would an app that fell between the two of those not be okay? Or would it be, you know, would that be a violation? I think where this leaves me is that perhaps when these contracts are signed up and when private companies take on government contracts or work with the government to do this kind of big public health um, initiative, perhaps the parameters of that um scheme should be signposted a little bit more clearly and perhaps it's even something like saying government saying look you know we were involved with this study up until this point but you've got to know that from this point we don't have any control over it it's not part of a government-backed thing it's not part of this public health initiative by all means it may be very worthwhile taking part but maybe you um, you know you should just know that it's it's in a different realm now and i also think there's this question around well if these are beneficial if this public health study is beneficial then who's going to make it you know if people don't believe that the government is capable or an academic group is capable of of doing this or it's likely to come out of that kind of platform maybe we think about new ways we need to think about new ways that these products can be developed and how they can be done in a a way that you know signpost people so they know what they're kind of getting getting involved so i, I almost think that what happened is in this really early frantic rush at the beginning of the pandemic people you know did great products and they got stuff out but maybe they didn't think so much about that long-term end game because there was going to be a point when the contract ended and where the you know the the funding ended and i think maybe thinking about that end game way back at the beginning might make this feel like less of a pivot and more of a inevitability yeah i think that that kind of moving from a publicly funded to a commercial app is what's making people quite uncomfortable and and people aren't just worried about this from a data point of view but I mean there's also the competition element as well I mean in terms of Luca there's a payment 
app in Estonia called Paypolitan. And it's been really vocal about criticising how Luca essentially has got a, a head start into the payments market. They they basically got startup funding through their contracts with the government to do contact tracing. And now it's able to pivot. It's really prominent. So if it's finding it really easy to get investment. And now it's just sort of going barreling into the the payments market but then I guess I mean to play devil's advocate you could argue that the government spent all this money like this is this is public money I mean why waste it why shut down an app that has tried to as Lucas says make people's lives easier why not make that the foundation for a business that is also trying to do something different or innovative I mean that is one argument it is, it is an argument, um, which I guess would be Luca's argument, but maybe not one that stands up to a great deal of scrutiny. And I think it, um, not to get too bored down in contracts that were signed at the beginning of the pandemic and whatever terms those contracts contain, but I suppose one small lesson that we might learn here is when government funding is used to give a huge boost to a service such as Zoe or Luca, what's the end game for that? And Matt, you were sort of talking about this. What's going to happen with that app? at the end of the pandemic? I mean, could a government have put some sort of proviso in the contract that any users gained during a period as a result of government funding cannot be used for X, Y, Z in the event of this app changing, et cetera, et cetera. One would imagine that everybody was panicking so much rightly at the beginning of the pandemic that an awful lot of public money was used unwisely, as we've seen in the UK with the scandal around the procurement of PPE and such like. So there are lessons to be learned here, and it isn't small fry. Um, you know, 40 million people using this Luca app. If you're a competitor in the mobile payment space, then you're probably a little bit annoyed that, what, like half the population of Germany all of a sudden has um, a rival payment app on their phone from a company that kind of got to that position in a slightly different way. It's a really interesting story. We'll include a link to the full version in the show notes as always. And I know we've got a pretty international listener base, including lots and lots of people in Germany. So get in touch and let us know what you think about this COVID data, COVID app data pivot podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week, or if you're going back through the archive in past weeks as well. For our second story this week, we are joined by Rachel Pels, the author of the latest in our series of Wired books. This one is called Genomics, How Genome Sequencing Will Change Our Lives. Rachel, you start the book by explaining some of the amazing progress that's been made in the world of genomics since the first human genome was sequenced, not only in terms of what we're capable of, but also in terms of the falling cost of this sort of work, which is something I was really struck by. How have things kind of changed in the last 20 years or so in this field? Yeah, it's um, it's come on remarkably, actually. It's really, um, when you think how 30 years ago, we didn't actually have a term for genomics. Um, it's still quite a new term. And when um, scientists kind of got together to create a map of the first human genome, um, it took them, I think, 10 years and cost something like three billion US dollars Um and now you can just sequence um, a whole human genome at the click of a button pretty much, and it won't take um, more than a couple of hours. So that kind of gives you a sense of um, how quickly things have changed. It is really amazing. I think it, it, the cost had fallen by a factor of, God, it was like down to like less than $300. I can't, can't quite do the maths in my head for like what a what factor that is, but it's just incredible. And, you, you know, as everyone probably knows, there's, you know, 23andMe and things like that. And, yeah. you know, there's full genome sequencing kits that you can get for for fractions of the cost that it originally took and that progress is really opening up 
the potential of new treatments, particularly for like single gene conditions like cystic fibrosis. So this is something you go into in the book, but maybe you could talk about how those treatments for cystic fibrosis work and how far away are we from using this technology to maybe even cure or eradicate a disease like cystic fibrosis? Yeah, so cystic fibrosis is quite a good example of um, something that we can quite easily pinpoint in our genome. Um, so it's caused by a defective protein that results from mutations um, in one particular gene. Um, and because of that, if you imagine you've got a map of um, all of our DNA, um, scientists can ex- yeah, sort of pinpoint exactly um, where that fault uh, lies which means that potentially we could eradicate this gene from our whole gene pool if we wanted to. Um, There have been studies done um, so far just in mice, not yet in humans, but it's sort of going that way, uh, where researchers have swapped the defective piece of DNA that can lead to cystic fibrosis and replaced it with a healthy sequence. Um, And that's a really significant step because it means that if a person today is born with um, that mutation they could undergo what will hopefully be one day quite a straightforward procedure um, and live a long and healthy life. Um, obviously we're not quite there yet but um, genomics has um, you know just by having that data means that we can um, uh, we've, we've sort of progressed in terms of medication and treatments um, for it. Absolutely and it's not just having the data or being able to map the genome that's enabling us to make these treatments there's also uh progress in editing the genome itself and we have all these tools now for snipping the genome and inserting new genes so i think one of them is called crispr how does that work crispr if you think about it like a pair of scissors um is how i tend to describe it um they can cut um a sort of strand of dna um and use that sort of point to edit the the DNA to um, put in a new gene or, or change the gene, if you like. Um, I'm massively oversimplifying it, but <laughs> that is, um, that's sort of basically um, how it works. It's not um, perfect. Um, it's still a very new sort of technology and um, people do have their sort of um, reservations about it. Um, it's not entirely precise, so the danger is um, if we were to use it on humans at the moment, um, you could accidentally sort of cut the wrong part of the DNA or um, sort of accidentally affect a wider um, region than you intended to. So the technology is there. There are some other um, similar things that are sort of um, in development. There's something called prime editing, which um, a lot of people think is potentially safer because it's more um, precise. Um, but that's, yeah, there are sort of different things that are um, improving in that regard. But CRISPR is the sort of original, if you like, um, the way that scientists worked out how to go in and, and edit and actually change our DNA. Yeah, I guess we'll get our scissors again slightly more precise, right, with these new technologies. Miss CRISPR is maybe like a big kind of ribbon cutting pair of shears that you might use to cut the ribbon on a new development. Maybe uh, Maybe these new technologies are more like the little scissors you might use for a more delicate operation or something like that so what about like other conditions because there are applications for this technology for things like cancer as well how can genomics help with maybe cancer treatment or other more personalized forms of medicine because we can map out all of our dna um, we can see where everything lies um, and we can also um, so what researchers are starting to do is um, 
to create a database of um, how different drugs and different sort of treatments um, affect different um, genes, if you like. Um, so from that, we can sort of start to piece together how, um, why one medication affects you differently to me, for example. And the hope there is that as this kind of research progresses, we can start to roll out more um, tailored medicine um, in terms of diagnosis, but also the treatments that you get. And that means that hopefully one day, um, especially when it comes to things like cancer, which is really um, complicated to treat people for and people react really differently um, with different types of medicines. Um, we can, you can sort of look hopefully at your exact um, personal um, genetic makeup and a doctor could say, okay, this medication is much more likely to work for you for this reason. And that the idea is that um, that will save a lot of time and save a lot of money for the NHS, but also um, a lot of stress and pain and make us all hopefully um, a bit healthier. That's the dream anyway. Absolutely. And I guess there are other, uh, we won't go into this now, but there are other technologies that you mentioned in the book as well that use kind of the tumour's own DNA against it or by, you know, targeting the, the genetic code of the tumour rather than the body that, that it's inside. You can kind of target cancer that way as well. But I think we probably won't go into that at this point. I wanted to talk to you about some of the more controversial applications because, you know, kind of within or adjacent to healthcare, there's a kind of growing number of companies offering genetic screening of embryos and I was really struck by like the amazing range of things that we can now predict or that these companies claim they can predict about people just from their DNA. Yeah um, so we've all heard of designer babies I think that is um, probably the most famous um, or well-known thing that we think of and um, we think of gene editing and humans um, it's kind of becoming a reality. I think um, there's a couple of companies, um, there's one in particular called Genomic Prediction, um, which um, is a service that provides genetic testing for would-be parents going through IVF. And essentially they can take a couple's embryo and they can use um, genetic sequencing data from the parents and also from the embryonic cells to determine that embryo's particular risk of carrying um, inherited diseases like heart disease, diabetes, certain cancers, and they can take all of that information and create a sort of health score um, called a polygenic risk score, um, which the parents could then use as a basis for selecting which embryo looks the healthiest and in theory select it um, to go forward with their IVF process. Um, and on paper, it's, it's great. Um, studies by this company genomic prediction show that children born through the service have like a 46 percent lower risk of heart attack um 42 percent less chance of getting type 2 diabetes um but it's obviously a little bit controversial because it does sort of open the door a little bit wider to um this idea of designer babies um if we can select for one thing um like potential like health prospects we could very easily select for something else more um, aesthetic like hair colour and eye colour. Um, so it sort of leads to lots of big ethical questions um, and we don't know all the answers just yet. Yeah, something that comes up in this a lot is this question of like, and to be fair, this is a thing that comes up in a lot of technology discussions that we have on the podcast is this question of 
kind of where do we draw the line? You know, where do we draw the line between what's acceptable in terms of screening? Okay, it's totally acceptable to screen for Down syndrome or, you know, Edwards syndrome. We do that all the time. Cystic fibrosis, maybe people would put that in a similar bucket because it's this life-limiting disease that we might want, you know, if we're choosing an embryo, we might want to choose an embryo that isn't at risk of having that condition, for example. But with other stuff, as you say, it's a little bit more of a grey area. And I think we're probably... I mean, maybe I'm assuming things, but I would think most people would maybe have a problem with embryos being chosen based on hair colour or eye colour or something like that. So, but then not everyone shares those views. So I guess my question is, how are countries trying to work their way through these thorny issues and figure out what approach to take when it comes to genomics? How are they trying to figure out what best represents the kind of view of the people, as it were? Yeah, it's a tricky one because, um, like we said, we we don't really know exactly how um, we could be impacted by all these changes it's still a really new concept and something a lot of people don't know a huge amount about quite understandably um and like you say i mean it's easy for i think um perhaps some scientists to say um and some people to think on paper okay great um if we can eradicate a condition like cystic fibrosis then we should um but a lot of people who live with that condition would say well actually i wouldn't change anything um my life is very valuable and um, you know, people with differences contribute a lot to society. So it's, it's really unclear sort of how we're going to go forward with this. So at the moment, um, Genomic Prediction, which is the um, company I mentioned that's doing this embryonic screening service, they will only allow parents to screen for health, um, not for anything else, aesthetic um, skin colour, hair hair colour, intelligence, all of those things, um, they will only show the data um, that reveals the sort of forecast of the the embryo's health. Um, They have the potential, though, they have the data there. They could show the parents if they wanted to. They say that they won't because um, that's a clear line to them. Um, But there's no regulation. There's nothing stopping people from doing this. and like with any um, sort of business opportunity, I suppose, um, as this technology becomes more mainstream, there's a huge potential for um, other other groups to sort of pop up and potentially um, take advantage of, of couples, um, especially when it comes to <laughs> the, the sort of people who want to conceive. Absolutely. So in the UK, we've taken an interesting approach to this with a sort of citizens assembly where a group of people are going to get together and I guess just thrash it out like what we want the regulation to look like and what we want this landscape to look like in future and I guess how you balance that desire for better medical outcomes with this desire not to do anything and I guess too too beyond the pale or whatever. Um, You raise a really important distinction in the book between individual kind of genome editing for people like I guess this would be the case with cystic fibrosis, fibrosis treatments for someone who has already been born, but then there's also something else called germline editing. So can you talk me through the difference and, and why that matters? There's two different types of germ, um, two different types of gene editing. Um, there's germline editing, which is when changes are made to the DNA, d- DNA in embryos um, or the sperm or the egg cells. And that's where the inheritable genetic code lies. Um, and that has an impact on the future generations because the changes are passed on. Um, that is not currently allowed um, in most of countries that regulate this. You can't edit um, embryos themselves, um, certainly not outside the lab anyway. 
um, the the sort of more common, if you like, uh, more widely accepted form of gene editing is um, somatic. And that involves um, editing the DNA in a sort of fully formed human. <laughs> so that would be um, changes that you might make in a surgical procedure, if you like, um, to somebody um, after they've been born. And those changes won't be passed on to their um, to their descendants because it's not uh, within their germline. Um, and the reason why that's not currently allowed, um, the germline editing process, is because we just simply don't know the consequences um, much further down the line. We don't know what those um, impacts could be by changing one tiny thing. It could have lots of other um, impacts um, that we just can't predict. This is why, and listeners might remember this story from a few years ago, because I think we talked about it on the podcast at the time, this is why the Chinese scientist Hei Zhangqi got in so much trouble, because he had gene-edited the germline of these two babies that were born uh, to try and uh, treat them, make them, I think, more resistant to HIV infections. But it was this germline editing that was really kind of beyond the pen and what ended up with him kind of going to prison. Um Rachel, with all the I'm interested with all the kind of work you've done on the book and all the people you've spoken to, I'm interested where you kind of land on this like thorny ethical question. You know how you think the ideal future of this looks like. What what how are we going to regulate this stuff? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. Um, there's not really an easy answer. I think um, and something that Stephen Shu, the the founder of this um, embryonic screening service, um, said to me is that. And he's right that the genie is kind of out of the bottle. You know, once the technology exists, you can't wish it away. Um, we just have to, I think, be really open about it, um, transparent about what's being done and try to involve the public more. Um, so something that you mentioned, something that's, that's happening in the UK later this year is um, there's going to be a citizen's jury, um, which is essentially a sort of group discussion um, they are bringing in different sort of patients um, who have different conditions, um, people who are not necessarily experts, so not scientists, um, to just talk through the different implications, how they feel about it. And the idea is they're going to use those discussions to inform some of the policy around it. Um, whether or not that's a perfect system, I don't know, but it's um, it's kind of a right step. Um I think the best that we can do is, yeah, just talk about these things really openly and um, not roll out things too quickly, if if that makes sense. Um, I think this is a classic example of something where the science and the technology is kind of moving along so quickly, it's really overtaken our human understanding of it. Um, so it's something we'd have to just be careful about. Absolutely. Um, well, let's have our own let's have our own citizens' jury of wired podcast listeners. Do let us know what you guys think about this because it's a really really interesting topic and one I think where there's going to be a really wide kind of range of views. So we'd love to hear some of them if you have any views on this. Uh, let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. Uh, I want to say thank you to Rachel for joining us and a reminder that genomics, how genome sequencing will change our lives, is out now at all good bookstores. Thanks to Amit and Rachel for that. And we've got time for one of your emails before we go this week. Linda, who I assume is from Australia, writes in about funeral trains after Natasha's fact about London's Necropolis Railway last week. 
Yeah, that's right. Linda writes that there's another beautiful and still standing funeral train station in Sydney, Australia. So these were, if you don't remember or didn't listen to last week's episode, the trains that were used to ferry caskets from cities like Sydney or London or San Francisco to places where there was more room to to bury them when the cemeteries in their cities filled out. So when you catch trains in and out of Central Station in Sydney, you go past the station uh, when it operated, it used to carry the departed and their mourners to Rookwood Cemetery, which... I assume used to be on the outskirts of Sydney, but by a glance at Google Maps is now firmly within the city limits of Sydney. So uh, really interesting uh, to know that there's more than one mortuary train and Natasha will be delighted to hear that when we let her know. Uh, Thanks, Linda. And if anyone wants to look up this station, it's called Mortuary Station. And it looks very pretty. A nice day out for anyone in Sydney or happens to be travelling to the area. Um, If you have a thrilling fact about funeral trains or anything else, podcast.wired.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you if you want to get in touch with the show. All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.